Good morning. Welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're reading the entire Bible together, one chapter at a time, and here we are in Isaiah chapter 7. We're really starting to get into the thick of it here after the introduction we saw in the first five chapters. Then we got into Isaiah actually narrating his experience, God speaking to him, appearing to him in the temple, high and lifted up. He sees the vision of the the six-winged seraphim. He has his sin purged from his lips with the burning hot coal. We looked at just what what is he to go and preach, you know, and it's uh, it was it's quite the commissioning. And here we are in chapter seven. Now we're actually moving on to the confrontation here. Isaiah is going to be sent to go meet Ahaz, uh, who's described in the Bible as just one of the worst kings in many ways of Judah, and he is going to confront him with a prophecy that is very familiar to us, um, at least in part, because there's going to be this mention of, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And of course, whenever we hear that, we just think, you know, Christmas, yay, you know, like we just want to bust out the, the cider and the Christmas wreaths. But in the context here, right, this is this confrontation with Ahaz. We're talking about how Judah is caught between two armies, between the Syrians and between the Ephraimites, between the northern tribe and their enemies off to the east. So what's going on here in this context? What does the promise of Emmanuel mean to Ahaz? So hopefully this will help us appreciate that Christmas prophecy a little bit more, understanding where it came from. And joining us today to go over this, we've got one of our regular guests. We've got Pastor David Boyce-Claire, pastor of Faith in Bethesda Lutheran Churches in Pine Lawn, Missouri. Welcome back, brother. So good to have you back, and for this chapter, no less. Yes, I always get the real great chapters. I, I'm just thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I can't, I can't tell if you're, you know, be, being slightly facetious or not. Because on the one hand, it's meaty, but on the other hand, oh, no. <laughs> it is kind of hard to kind of dissect the historical stuff here, isn't it? Oh, oh, you bet. I, I've tried to do that with the last couple hours. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. Um, and it doesn't help, too, that, you know, there's all these names for things that we don't typically use. You know, you think Syria, and most people think of something entirely different. We're, we're talking right. about ancient Aram, you know, and they're, 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 indeed, there's a lot of historical stuff, but I think, I think it's worth it. You know, like when you, when you appreciate the context here, this, this sign of Emmanuel, I mean, I, I think in the end, it actually helps you understand the coming of the Lord better. Yes, it does. And that it, it, he breaks into history, that, that, mm-hmm. that our God is, uh, it, it's true, it's reality, you know, our, our, our trust in the Lord. Right. No, that, that, and, that's just right. You know, it actually reminds me, you know, um, going over intro theology with the freshman here at Concordia University, Irvine, which is where I'm at right now this morning. And we just recently were going over the, the different ways that people talk about, for instance, like the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And one of the popular ideas out there is that it's mythological, that the oh Gospels, they are meant to be uh, spiritual and not historical documents, right? And so that's that's a popular idea that's going on out there. And so we, we had to address that. And I think you're right when you appreciate that, well, now hang on a second the very prophecies that are forecasting the Lord Jesus, they're very historical. This is a historical book. This is not mythological stuff. This isn't legends and myth. 
this is, as you were saying, I mean, this is like the stuff of history and war and years. And we have a specific date here, like 65 years. I mean, this is blow by blow, literal stuff. Exactly. And, and you know, with the, with the resurrection of our Lord, you know, I mean, uh, if you look at St. Paul, it, it, that, was the, that was the offense that he uh, was encountering among the Greeks. You know, they love myths. <laughs> they, right, they were the right. makers of myths, you might mm-hmm. say. And, uh, no, and, and Paul says, no, a few years ago, the whole world was redeemed in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Exactly. <laughs> and, and they just thought he was crazy. So that's right. That's, that shows the, 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 that Christianity is the antithesis of myth in any possible understanding of it. Absolutely. Um, so that, that really, I really do appreciate that. That does help us have a little bit of the bigger context here, what's going on. And so as we then think about these matters, let's go ahead and get into the specifics here. Let's, uh, let's see what you and I have been able to come up with as we looked over this uh, another time. Cause this is one that you just, you look over it every single time and again and again, you have to. Um, but before we do, let's, let's, uh, say a prayer. And if you would pray for us and for everybody listening. Absolutely. Oh, Emmanuel, God with us, be with us to guide our study of your precious word, which makes us wise unto salvation. Grant that we may wonder in joy and awe of your presence in your church from the beginning of the world even until now, that we may faithfully follow you through the cares and fears of life. For you are Emmanuel, God with us forever. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right. Let's go ahead and read maybe just even the first two verses because like we were saying there's enough names in just the first two verses that we got to stop and say okay now who are we talking about what are we talking about we 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 did see in chapter six the commissioning of isaiah and here he is he's you know he's called as a prophet his his guilt is taken away his sin is atoned for right Uh, we, we looked at that whole thing about you know being in the presence of a holy god and Hey, his his presence and his glory—that's a—that's a scary thing, you know. God being with us, uh, whoa, watch out. Um, which I think kind of you know, a little bit kind of helps us to understand what might the prophecy of Emmanuel mean. But before we get there, we got to say, okay, when when are we talking about? Who are the players? Let's look at these first two verses. Yes, chapter seven. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria. And Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So, okay, we've got a few people uh, going on here. We've got three kings, he says, yes. right? There's there's Ahaz, there's Rezin, and there's, um, I mean, Pekah or, or Pekah. So why is this significant that these are the three kings, and, and what's going on here? Well, um, one of the things, there you, you cannot uh, avoid seeing the elephants in the room. There's the elephant to the east, which is Assyria, and there's the elephant to the south. I mean, yes, to the southwest, which is Egypt. 
And so you have the, you know, these great uh, ancient empires that are against each other. And then you have all of these little kingdoms in the middle. And uh, you have uh, re- resin of, of uh, Syria sort of joining forces with Pika, who is the king of the northern kingdom. Uh, Israel, it's usually the t- ten tribes of Israel, Israel and, and Ephraim. Mm-hmm. And they want um, Judah to join with them against Assyria. That's that's what they're doing. So that's why they they go to war against Judah because uh, they want Judah to join them against Assyria. And uh, I, I'm tr- I'm trying to point out. Well, you know, what's interesting is that Pekah was a, uh, a f- sort of a uh, captain in the army of of Israel, and and he revolted against his king, Pekahiah. And uh, after he was only king for six months, and and he's kind of like really closely allied with Re- Rezin from Syria. So so you know the the Syrians, which are sort of a powerful little kingdom to the northeast of of Israel, are you know they're they're kind of bound together, mm-hmm. and then and then they have this they they declare war on Judah. That's kind of the situation. And in this case, you have Ahaz who is a bad egg among very good eggs, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> except uh, after his son Hezekiah. Hezekiah has a real winner with Manasseh, uh, mm-hmm. who is, uh, you, know, a, a, you know, if you think Ahaz was bad, right. <laughs> you haven't seen Manasseh. So, yeah, right, so right. in, in this case, and, and this is kind of like the, the, what you're go, what's going on here is Ahaz it, probably hasn't shown his hand mm. yet. He intends to uh, go to the Assyrians and appeal to them against uh, Pika and Rezin. Right. And and that's where Isaiah comes in here. Right. Yeah. So that's that's very helpful. We we got to remind ourselves. You know. I mean, we're reading the Bible, and and the Bible is focused all around you know Israel and Judah, and so Israel and Judah seem very big in the perspective of Scripture, but. On the world stage, they are very small. They're, I mean, they're important because they're on, they're right in the middle of these these crossroads between, um, between you know Africa and Asia, basically, and so strategic, and in Europe for that matter. So strategically, this area is just, it's something's always going on there because everything has to cross through this place, and so it's strategically important. But there's these little guys, like you were saying, and. The big guys, the big players are Assyria off to the east and then, you know, Egypt down to down to the south, uh, southwest. And so these guys are saying, hey, you know, we, we've got to we got to band together. We've got to have some kind of an alliance if, if we're going to have any play in all of this, if we're going to have any defense. And so like you were saying, you know, um, Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel teaming up. This isn't this isn't surprising, um, as you were saying. Um, Ephraim or Ephraim, one of the ten tribes that was the the ruling tribe, really among the ten northern tribes. That's just the way it's being referred to here. You could refer to right. it as, you could refer to it as Samaria, Israel, the North, Ephraim. It's the same, um, and so it's it's normal that they would you know team up or something like that. What's interesting is, as you said, is that Ahaz is planning on just. <laughs> going to the next level and being like, I'm just going to team up with Assyria. I'm going to just make an alliance with them, um, which is a plan, um, though we're going to find out that's that's not a very good plan um, to be trying to make an ally out of Assyria. It's uh, kind of playing with fire. 
Exactly. I mean, it's like, like an alliance with the devil, you might say. Yeah. <laughs> or right. play. Uh, yeah. I mean, you, you know, you, you don't want to play around with the uh, with a, the the lion or the tiger or something right. like that. Yeah, yeah. He can turn on you. <laughs> and that, that's right. So I mean, you know, it's like you know, here they are. You know, think about that. Here's Syria. You know, making an alliance with Ephraim. Um, and, and they're trying to hope, okay, if we band together, we can, you know, stand against these big guys, these big bad, you know, like the, the devil, right? You were saying, um, yeah. and A has his plan as well. I'm just going to try to be friends with the devil, which is just like that, that's somehow an even worse plan, right? Um, yes. and, and so what we're going to see, what follows is, is God trying to, in some ways, like say, hey, hey, Ahaz, you, you don't have to do that. You don't, you don't, you don't have to be so scared of these guys that you you go running to the devil. Um, you should be running to me, right? But so th- exactly. it's important. It's important to understand this political situation, or else we don't understand like what's going on in the heart of Ahaz and why all this prophecy um, makes sense in the context of faith and having faith and standing firm. Or, as it says here, shaking like the trees of the forest shake before the wind, the opposite of standing firm in faith. Yes. All right. Well, let's go ahead and read the next few verses here. This this will flesh this out before we get into the prophecy that Isaiah has for us. So this is picking up in three. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, let's go up against Judah and terrify it, and let's conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Pause there before we get into the actual prophecy here. So kind of stopping mid-sentence here. But this is, this is the situation, right? And so God is giving a, um, Ahaz, through Isaiah, very specific counsel. Don't be scared of these guys. Right. And trust in and trust in me. And it's interesting they, they, where he's going. Uh, Ahaz is inspecting the uh, reservoirs and the water the water supply for the city right. of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And it is there that his son uh, Hezekiah will will uh, er- or rather excavate a tunnel. Uh, you know, which is is the Siloam Tunnel, mm-hmm. uh, which is quite a quite an amazing. Uh, uh, you know, archaeological discovery. You know, there's they 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 they're kind of the the workers on one end of the tunnel and then working through the other end. Uh, they they're uh, they're carving on the walls in in ancient Hebrew. Uh, you know yep. what what's going on, mm-hmm. and then and then that supplies water for the city of Jerusalem, so that it it becomes sort of like a like uh, Isaiah says a a little. Uh, hut in the middle of a cucumber field. <laughs> uh, right. They can conquer all the rest of the land, but not that. And then uh, he, um, you know, he he's just, he calls he calls the two two um, kings uh, 
the the smoldering uh, mm-hmm. firebrands uh, where, where like it's maybe a lot like if you if you have a, a campfire and you and kind of poke the logs with another another branch and and then on the end of it it gets gets red hot or something like that it's like those are the two little firebrands that you use to poke the wood there and. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and 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 he's kind of you know and then, and he shows their 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 purpose. They want to set up a puppet king in in Ju- in Jerusalem, uh, right. the son of Tabiel. There's different views of that. Either Tabiel is a Syrian, or is a place from which a princess uh, who is the mother of a uh, Judah uh, Judah noble uh, wanted you know them to put on the throne there. So they want to maybe have a puppet king in Jerusalem. Right. Right, yeah. No, it's unclear historically who exactly this this Tabiel or Tabiel guy is supposed to be. But he, regardless of who he is individually, clearly the function, right, as you were saying, is that they're just trying to get control over Judah so they can expand this, you know, military alliance against the the, the big superpowers. You know, so that's that's the the thrust of it. In any case. But as you said, it's interesting the way that he describes these guys. Yeah, firebrands, you know, fiery guys that, you know, um, you know, hot to the touch. You don't want to mess with them. But on the other hand, smoldering stumps of firebrands, right? I yeah. mean, you know, and, and what do you think of, you know, like a, a smoldering stump here? This is like, you know, something that's it's been burning for a while, but it's it's about to go out. Already, just this language is, you know, don't be afraid of these guys. They look scary right now, but they're not going to be around for very long. Already, we have a hint of that. Absolutely. Well, I mean, for one thing, reason is killed maybe two two years later by by uh, Tiglath Pileser, the the uh, Syrian, and uh, Pika is is put down. Uh, he like he was a, a conspirator, so a conspirator come, rises up against him and 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 puts him down right yeah so historically they, they are not going to last very long and so already we we have kind of the the main thrust of the push back then from god through isaiah hey these these guys don't be scared of them i'm going to take care of them quickly even you don't have to worry about it and go appealing to the to the king of assyria you don't have to go and make right. that deal with the devil um just just hang on and, and trust in me um, the other thing I'm glad that you mentioned, like the the the, the tunnel of uh, Siloam there, that we we have to understand this in the context of siege warfare because I mean so I mean so many of the Psalms even are about siege warfare and it's just it's just not something that we we think about but you know the idea is with these cities like it's going to be very hard to get into the city um, you know, somehow or to bombard the city somehow. This is, this is not, you know, the age where you just, you just call in the bombers or something like that. You know, you, you can't just order an airstrike. So if, if people bunker down in a city behind the walls or in a, a fortress up in the mountains, it's, there's very little you can do to, to get them directly. And so all you can do is starve them out and you just, right. just surround them on all sides and prevent them from getting food and water. And that will pretty quickly, I mean, really relatively in terms of ancient warfare anyway, get them to come out with that white flag and just give up. And so here, like you were saying, Ahaz is, um, you know, appropriately fearing um, the, the most likely way that Jerusalem could fall, which is to siege. And so he's checking to see, hang on, do we have access to water so that we could wait them out so that we could actually prevail in a siege situation? Exactly. 
So, so here we are. This this confrontation um, along this you know, this inspection area, and it's here Isaiah with his son, which you know the, this name right, like it's Shishiar Yashub. You know, literally it means a remnant will return, and we'll just have to. I mean, maybe we'll have a chance to talk about that later. But it, it's funny because Isaiah's son is just basically wearing like a billboard around his neck with that name, just <laughs> already like forecasting something else that's going to happen later on. Um, but we're, we're not even dealing with that quite quite yet. But so here they and, are. And in the next chapter, you have the longest name in scripture, Harold oh or Shashbaz. You know, I mean, that's yeah. right. Yeah. So the <laughs> names of uh, the names of the sons here just keep getting better, and, and we'll. I hope we'll have a chance later to talk about it. But for right now, it's important to just see, okay, here we are. You know, there's this, there's this alliance going on. God's like saying, don't be afraid of it. Um, but he is. And so here, here is the actual prophecy then that Isaiah says in verse seven, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. You know, you got to love some of this poetry. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all, right? I mean, this is so true. I mean, it's just he thinks that he can waver in his faith, Right, but still have political security if he goes and makes this deal with Assyria. But here is God saying, "You're not even going to have, you're not even going to have temporal security. You're not even going to have political stability if you don't first have stability in faith, because mm. I am the source of all peace and goodness and security." What what tremendous advice for for even um, you know heads of state in our own day and age. Not to say yeah. that we're trying to say that the church should run the country. You know that there should be a, a you know just a m- putting together of of church and state. But uh, the the fact that those who are in positions of authority in the nations, uh, it would be uh, you know very good for the people of the world for them to be believers in the true God. <laughs> Well, it would it would be good for them to be believers in the true God, and even even short of that, though, it it is actually part of the responsibility, and and really just the good management of the left hand kingdom that it acknowledge God, the Creator, in the way that it conducts itself as a political power, and ensure. A lot of cases, that's not going to be looking like, you know, true religion, like you know, faith in the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, but. A government is getting is getting off course when it thinks of itself as the ultimate power, or when it doesn't see good and evil as real absolute things. When it doesn't acknowledge that there is a God of of history, a God of creation behind it, that that kind of irreverence is is actually bad from a secular perspective. You know, it's interesting that, um, you know, one great play uh, was um, A Man for All Seasons, where Tom, you know, and, and we don't necessarily agree with Thomas More's uh, Roman Catholic position, but uh, they, you know, either he said, you know, you're too, you're too scru- scrupulous with your, your, your uh, you know, ethical position. And he says, and, and he makes a statement, he says, when, um, 
the the heads of state or when people in government uh, forsake their their principles, their ethics, mm-hmm. for the sake of of expedience or whatever else, uh, then they lead their country by a short route to chaos. Mm. And 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 I mean, and and it's kind of like what Jesus said in the gospel: uh, who he was faithful in the little is faithful in much. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there there is such a thing as integrity and and principles of uh, ethical principles, That's moral right. principles. That's right. Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. And, you know, we shouldn't say like, oh, well, that's, you know, church and state or something like that. Like ethics and moral principles and integrity has nothing to do with it. Like, n- no, like th- that much actually is the domain still <laughs> of the left hand kingdom. It's a, it's very disastrous to not try to have any. That people behave themselves. <laughs> yes, exa- exa- exactly, exactly. Uh, we we got to look at the rest of the prophecy here, but we got to go into a short break first. So everybody, hang with us. We're looking at Isaiah chapter seven here on Thy Strong Word. We'll be right back. Ecclesiastes 10 verse 10 states, If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Find this true wisdom in Christ on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on Worldwide KFUO. Sharpen the iron of your faith together with two pastors as they take up the sword of the Spirit to proclaim the gifts of Christ crucified and risen for you. I'm Gary Duncan, the General Manager of Worldwide KFUO. We promote our various programs. We ask you to listen to your favorite show. We ask you to support our broadcast ministry, and we thank you for that support. But maybe we don't ask you to pray for us as much as we should. Please pray for the staff, management, radio hosts, and volunteers here at Worldwide KFUO. Pray that the message of salvation through Christ is heard clearly by listeners around the world. Pray that we continue to reach into those areas that are hostile to the Word of God. Pray that KFUO continues to reach those people desperately needing to hear the good news message. And pray that God continues to bless us financially through the gifts we need to continue our broadcast ministry. Thank you for listening, supporting, and praying for Worldwide KFUO. You truly are appreciated. We are the messenger of good news. AM850 in St. Louis, worldwide at KFUO.org. Everybody to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa, and we're joined today by our guest, Pastor David Boyce-Claire, pastor of Faith in Bethesda Lutheran Churches in Pine Lawn, Missouri. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 7, and we're appreciating there's, there's so much going on in this really, uh, I mean, what you would say, I mean, precarious political situation leading up to this well-known Christmas prophecy that we have. There's a lot going on. You've got the two kingdoms, uh, of the people of God, you got Israel in the north, also called you know Ephraim or Ephraim here, and then in the south you've got Judah, 
Um, and, and these guys, along with some of the other little guys in the area, like what, what it's called here, Syria, are just sandwiched between these superpowers of Egypt and Assyria. And all this drama is just unfolding as a result. And so we were just looking at this prophecy here that Isaiah gives in verses 7 through 9. Just you know, commenting on that last bit in nine. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Just reflecting on how that's that's just so true that if if a government doesn't have that that basic set of of principles, if it doesn't have that basic acknowledgement of God is the as the creator as the as the true ruler, if you don't have that much, right, there's going to be problems. And I'm just thinking about how we were reading Daniel and Ezra and. I mean, even even the Persians had some sense of you know like there's like there's a god of heaven. I mean, like you, you know you, you've got to you've got to have something, some kind of uh, a baseline reverence towards God, or else things are going to go really bad. Um, I, I want to take a look here at the the first part though that we were looking at um, of this prophecy here, this thing about sixty five years. And as as we turn to that, I want to invite everyone listening live. If you have a question and you're in St. Louis. I hope that line isn't wonky anymore. It's 314-821-0850. But even if it is, everyone can call 1-800-730-2727. If you have a question or a comment, you can also send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. K-A-F-U-O. I'm just starting to talk like a Midwesterner. Um, I don't know how that happened. Um, <laughs> oh, that's fine. Okay, okay, okay. Or Midwesterners. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> well, I mean, that's a very particular kind of Midwest. It's like uh, Minnesota, right? You know, K-A, yeah. okay. Um, anyways, so in verse 8, within 65 years, um, Ephraim, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. Now, that's an awfully specific a line right there. What's that referring to? Well, uh, the big year to remember, I mean, there's two years that uh, you want to remember, the year 722 B.C. That is the year that Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, uh, destroyed Samaria and ended the, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, then you, of course, you have also later the year 587, which is the year that uh, Jerusalem was was conquered by Nebuchadnezzar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and and in this particular case, it, it's a little uh, 722 is not too far. Maybe about uh, maybe a little less than 20 years from the time that's mentioned here. But the the, the what happened was. At this particular period of time, Assyria began the practice of deporting, um, you know, what you would say indigenous or native populations mm-hmm. from their home homeland and and taking them somewhere else in order to try to defeat, you know, make them not less of a threat to his empire. And so that's what he does in, in 732 in, in Damascus. He completely subjugates the the nation kills resin uh, and, and and makes it a, a province of of uh, Assyria. Then uh, re- then transports the people away. So what this is referring to is the process of of transporting the people of of Israel, the Northern Kingdom, away, which was like uh, completed by Ezra Haddon, who was a king. At, you know, sixty five years in the future there, and so uh, and then they they. Uh, put into this uh, the northern kingdom of foreigners 
right. uh, from other parts of the world. And then, and of course, th- those that was the beginnings of what we know as the Samaritans. Right. But anyway, it was kind of like in, in, by 65 years, you would have all of the all of the ten tribes are gone. They disappeared. They're they're no longer there. The only Judeans or Judahites are Judah and maybe Benjamin and Simeon, and right. that's about it. Right. Yeah, and that's and that's exactly what we want to be focused on here. It's not as if once you know a city falls or the capital falls, it's like the people is wiped out. The, the primary preoccupation here is is will there be a people of God, and will the people maintain their identity? And that is is a two step process. First of all, they need to be defeated, but then second of all, they really, in a sense, need to kind of forget who they are. Um, and and right. that second step is a little bit more involved. And I mean, really, the process of these powers coming in and accomplishing that is is even perhaps the part that's even more insidious. As you said, they they're just going to go and start deporting people, so scatter the people who are who are there, and then bring other people in. I mean, so this is just this way of just homogenizing the empire, right? You're just going to mix yes. everyone around, and what's their common thread going to be? Well, not worship of Yahweh anymore, um, that's for sure. I guess it'll just be that they're Assyrian citizens, right? I mean, so it's it's an effective way of just kind of carrying out this sort of reenculturation, which I suppose is sort of a polite way of saying brainwashing, Right. And in a way of just really just, you know, kind of eliminating the, the the last standing, you know, social ties that were supporting their religion and their cultural identity and just saying you're just going to be subjects of the Assyrian Empire now. And that's really the kind of highest power or or bond that you have anymore. It's sad, though, I mean, because you had 12 tribes of Israel um, really, I, I mean, at least from my reading of history, all that you have left is the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, because Paul right. mentions that he's from Benjamin. Mm-hmm. And, and Simeon was located in the south of Judah, so maybe the tribe of Simeon. But there's no, you know, there's no other, you know, that's why those that are follow, people of the book, people uh, of um, uh, Ju- Judaism, are, right. are known as Jews or right. Judahites. Yep. Right, Be- because functionally, at, at when it, when it's all said and done, um, in the same way that the north here is just getting referred to Ephraim, and Ephraim's kind of standing for the whole of the north, Judah was just standing for the whole of the south, and basically everything right. that was left, kind of almost just actually more than that, just merges in to Judah. And so even even if you say, oh well, you know, by ancestry I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, or even if you say like, oh by ancestry I'm from the tribe of Simeon, right? Like you were saying, you're functionally you're all just kind of members of Judah because, you know, Judah's kind of like the ark in the midst of this flood here. It's just everybody on board. We're, we're, all, we're all kind of Judah, and that's it. Exactly. And that's where Shira Jassib comes in because he's a remnant shall return or something, you know. So Judah, right. that's the remnant of, of the uh, nation of Israel. Right, right, yeah, that that's true. So, so that's the interesting thing that we got to keep in mind. When we were reading Daniel and Ezra, the, the thing that we were thinking about was really the Babylonian captivity, the Babylonian exile, you know, the Babylonians coming in and deporting Judah, deporting Jerusalem in the south, which, as you said, is 587, like, you know, over 100 years later from all yeah. this stuff. So we're, we're talking about, like, something way in the future. Back now, we're talking about the Assyrians being the power. So this is this is much further in the past, but... Isaiah is this just tremendous, tremendous book, you know, 66 chapters, 
And Isaiah is actually going to have the perspective of seeing both of these things as fitting into the bigger puzzle that Isaiah is looking at. Really, the, the Babylonian exile is just finishing what the Assyrians started. And so that's how all the pieces end up um, coming together that in the same yep. way right now that the north is getting mixed around and, you know, in 65 years, just with all the waves of deportation and resettlement, they're not going to really be a people anymore that that's going to be the program that the Babylonians are going to attempt later. Um, right. But, but even still, as you said, that just that, that crazy name that we're looking at, you know, of Isaiah's son, the, mm-hmm. the Shiari Jashub, that's saying they're not going to succeed though in the South, right. there will be something left anyway. Um, we, we should go ahead and impress on here like this. So this is the thing, verse 10, like this is, this is actually getting to this prophecy. Let, let's read the prophecy here and, and the prophecy really, it takes up the whole rest of the chapter and it's, it's worth giving it the whole go. And I think that yep. when we do, yep. it'll strike a lot of the listeners because you're, you're not used to listening to hear, hearing the whole thing. You kind of hear that one line, but appreciate how it all fits together here. Exactly. All right, here, verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures in that day. The Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. So so the, the prophecy is actually kind of long, and it, it's, it's not just, you know, the virgin will bear a son, but, you know, he's going to grow up and he's going to eat, you know, uh, you know, it's very interesting here. He's going to eat curds and honey and this whole curds and honey thing gets really extended because the land is full of briars and so stuff's not growing like it used to and there's desolation in the land and I, I don't know, it doesn't, it doesn't sound as happy as it does when we read it at Christmas, right? <laughs> 
Oh, right. Well, you know, and, and normally it, you end it uh, with a manual. And, and um, uh, then, you know, there's a lot of controversy over this particular prophecy as well. Um, you know, those that are more critical of Scripture uh, would say that the, the virgin, it, it should be just translated a young woman. And sometimes mm-hmm. they would say that that is a prophecy maybe regarding uh, Ahaz's son Hezekiah. Because Hezekiah, of course, was a was a real hero uh, with the true faith uh, by removing the high places and other places in Judah and so on. But um, you know, the Scripture tells us that that's a prophecy of our Lord, and and um, you know, you can probably see see patterns or or, or illustrations of how uh, righteous kings should act. But it is it is the prophecy of the coming of Christ. Right. So, so that is. So, I think you're you're putting your thumb on the tension here. The the question is: Is this a prophecy for Ahaz and the, the people who are who are hearing this? Because it's to the whole house of Jacob. I mean, house of David here. I mean, this is referring really to the whole people, really, and the people who are ruling them. Is it is this a prophecy for them and what they have going on in this time in this situation, or is it a prophecy? That is, I mean, for much, much later, right? I mean, we're talking like, you know, Samaria Falls in 722. This is before that, around like 730-ish, perhaps? Yeah, 734. Right. So so, the, so is this a prophecy about something that's going to happen, you know, over 700 years from now? Um, and, I, and I think the answer is, as we've seen before, we saw this in Daniel, we saw this in Ezra. The answer is um, it's both that, first of all, it's going to have a local fulfillment, you might say, that is in the lives and times of the people who are listening. But there's going to be a later and greater fulfillment in this pattern that we call, in when we're reading the Bible, typology, where there's a type, but there's an anti-type that's even greater than the first thing. Um, right. and, and we see this again and again. You know how you know when John the Baptist shows up, he's the greater Elijah, right? And and so in many ways, when Jesus, our Lord shows up he's a greater well something right and what is he a greater of in this case um perhaps it would make sense to say that he is a greater hezekiah how how would it make sense to interpret this with a a local interpretation local fulfillment first well uh i i would say that uh there is the you know, there, there's a difference between what they call rectilinear prophecy and typological prophecy. Mm, sure. uh, you know, rectilinear would be well, it only refers to Christ, and right. I tend to I tend to accept that uh, position. The the typological is that uh, you know, oftentimes Christ is said to be David in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. He's said to be uh, that that's a typology. There's a typology that's involved there. Um, you might say that, uh, okay, we look forward to the coming of the Messiah, the, the, the one who will sit on David's throne forever, uh, the Emmanuel, God with us. And then even the name, you know, it says, you know, that speaks about God being with us. But let's say if there is a faithful child that's born at this time, this is the type of, of country they're going to have to face with a country where there is no uh, vineyards or, or, or grain or anything. It's just you're just going to have to live off of, uh, you know, shepherding cattle to, to give you uh, milk uh, to, to subsist on. 
Uh, but right. but there is but I guess the thing is is ultimately that it's God in God's hands. God will preserve His people in that area through uh, you know through the um, shepherding of of animals in this way. Right, and and that's really it's really interesting to think about. And, and yeah, I I, um, I definitely I appreciate what you're saying, laying that out for the listeners. That yes, there there are this is a spot in the Bible where people disagree. And hey, you know what? It's okay. I mean, right. <laughs> something as large as the Bible, like you're not going to agree about every single verse. Um, so yeah, some some people will read this and say this is rectilinear. You know, it's a fancy word for straight line. Like there's a straight line that goes from this prophecy to Christmas, basically, right? Exactly. And some, people, and some people would look at this as typological to say that, you know, hey, um, when, when Christ comes, it's like he is sort of coming in the type or the pattern of something that happened earlier. And so that, first of all, this is fulfilled by something that happens earlier and then in the same form and kind of a parallel kind of analogous, analogous kind of way it happens again later with with the Lord in a bigger and better sense. So, I mean, exactly. either, either either way, you know, I mean, either way, we we still land on on Christ, who is you know really like the object of our faith here. Um, so, you know, we have we have that. But considering like what you were just saying about the devastation, you know, this is interesting because you know you have the name Emmanuel, God with us, but God being with Ahaz. Is maybe not what he wants right now. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah, he wants, in the same, he wants yeah, to right. rely on Assyria, and then yeah. and then even as you, if you read Second Kings chapter, uh, um, well, it was where where um, Ahaz appears there in Second Kings chapter uh, sixteen. Uh, he he, uh, you know, even wants to bring Assyrian religion into mm-hmm. uh, into Jerusalem by finding a, uh, an altar in Damascus where he meets Tiglath-Pileser, and then he sends directions to Jerusalem, and then he builds this new altar and sets aside the altar of Solomon. Mm-hmm. And and um, you know and, and so on, and as you said you know he he doesn't want anything to do maybe with this Emmanuel. <laughs> no 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 and and so and so for him you know like as you were saying because he's going to try to lead the people off in all kinds of idolatry and so for him if if, if Yahweh is showing up and imposing himself this is only going to be to his judgment um and and to I mean his. I mean, his detriment, at least as he sees it, because if here here God shows up, and and this is you know he's not totally wrong for thinking this way, because if the holy God shows up, well, what's that mean? It means that sinners are about to suffer. I mean, that's what we saw in the previous chapter. I mean, you know, Isaiah looks up and he sees the the long flowing train of God's robe on the throne, and he's like, this is way too close to the true holy God. I'm going to die, you know, yeah. and so realizing that God is present, you know, Emmanuel, that's a, that's a scary thing. And so even though on the one hand, the prophecy of Isaiah is that, hey, you know, Ephraim and Syria, they're going to be destroyed, just like you were saying, um, you know, Rezin's going to get assassinated. Um, the, the king of uh, the north is also going to die not long after this. Um, so even though that's going to happen, but the, the the problem is that Assyria is not just going to stop with them. <laughs> Assyria is not just going to do do Judah a solid here and just take care of his enemies and then stop and be like, I'll just leave you alone. Assyria is going to keep going, and Assyria is going to go all the way to the point of going and knocking on the doors and saying, we'd actually like to take Jerusalem too. And so right. Ahaz is going to get way more than he bargained for, and all of that is a sign of God's presence, his burning, fiery presence of judgment against him. Exactly. 
Should we should we say something about uh, the the prophecy about the virgin shall uh, be with child? Uh, in, in yes. Hebrew, it's Ha Alma. Yes. And Alma, of course, is a a maiden of marriageable age. Yes. Uh, that and it's a sign, of course. In a sense, uh, Isaiah's children are also signs right. uh you know so you know he goes to the prophetess his wife and then and they have the these sons that they name as pro- prophetic uh you know signposts as you mentioned uh, you know maybe a billboard around some of them <laughs> and they say dad why did you give me this <laughs> that's right uh, anyway uh in this case it's it's um but but the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was made, uh, uh, you know, a hundred, a couple, maybe two hundred years before Christ, uh, translates this as uh, "hey Parthenos," which mm-hmm. is uh, the word, and um, that that's uh, you know, and then and of course the Christians, as you know, uh, just pointed back to that, and because the Bible that they had was the um, uh, you know the the Septuagint, and so right. and that's why they then they retranslated it. You know the, those who were in, wanted to follow Judaism, uh, the guy by the name of Theodosian, and there was an Aquila and and a number of other guy or maybe one other uh, that translated the Old Testament to say use a different word <laughs> that didn't have the, the word Parthenos means virgin. Right. So so and and so that that goes to saying that that perhaps the way in which that passage was interpreted by ancient Judahites is that that that's the virgin shall have a child right well and that's and that's yeah that you're right then that gets into all kinds of controversy it's interesting to consider that in, in the local sense of fulfillment if we are going to see this as typological which I'm rather mm-hmm. attracted to seeing it that way Mm-hmm. You would you would read this as something like this that Isaiah is saying, "Hey, look, um, you know, hey, look at like so here. Here's one of the you know the the women here who's she's going to get married soon. Um, okay, let's just pick her one of these one of these virgins here. She not too long. She's going to get married. Um, she's going to have her husband. She's going to conceive. She's going to have a son. Uh, you know, and his the, the son will be a sign of God's presence with us. And before the kid is like I don't know, maybe say seven years old or so." Um, when he's, you know, at a discerning age, um, you know, and we shouldn't read anything more into that. This is, this isn't him being systematic. It's just him kind of poetically talking about him getting older, right? Um, mm-hmm. and so, you know, when he gets a little bit mature, uh, before he even gets to that point, um, these two kings are going to be gone. So this is in some ways a poetic way of saying all this is going to happen in less than like seven years. Um, this is going to happen right. really, really quickly. Um, exactly. And so, and there is a, there is something as a word of God for this period of time. So it's, in other words, it's a word that gives Ahaz d- direct counsel. Yes, is what what that what that saying. Yeah, exactly. Right. And and so and so in that sense, right? I mean, like it's not that big of a deal for Isaiah's purposes whether the woman is is a virgin or not. He's just kind of like pointing to someone and say, look. You know, I mean, because uh, you know, if she she if she's a virgin right now, it's going to take some time for her to you know take this husband, conceive, you know, have the time between conception and birth, 
and then the kid reaching a certain age. It's sort of like a way of saying, you know, roughly seven or eight years or something like that, right? Right. Um, right. And, and so it isn't really, you know, obviously the thing is she's a virgin when like Isaiah is just kind of like, you know, pointing at her, like our Lord kind of pointing at a fig tree that's nearby or something like that. Like here, here's an example, right? It doesn't really particularly matter if she's a virgin at that moment because she won't be, um, you know, once right. <laughs> she has a son, right? But when you then take this prophecy and you see it as a fulfillment, not just of what's going on in the days of Ahaz and Hezekiah, that there's all this coming destruction and that the Assyrians are coming. But when you're taking this as a way of referring to what's going to happen with the Lord, now all of a sudden the word gets more significant, as you were saying. And it's like important whether it means virgin or whether it just means young woman. And so it's one of those things where, you know, in the original context, it might not have meant, I mean, not not as much hinged on it, perhaps, but later on it became all kinds of controverted Right, and 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 it's 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 kind of like the way things are worded in ho- in Holy Scripture, mm. in that that in other words, the Holy Spirit says this is what I, this is what I have um, said through Isaiah, and and now uh, this is and and then now this is applied uh, to the birth of Christ. Well, and applying it to the birth of Christ, we only have like a minute here, but so so how does the, you know, this prophecy, right, is, you know, by the time he gets to a, a discerning age, there's just going to be this devastation, and, and the people are going to be, you know, not going to have their, their nice, precious vines and their abundant agricultural stuff going on. It's just going to be, you know, pastoral subsistence. How does that part of the prophecy, with all of its, you know, destruction, fit in with the birth of Christ. And and so how, connect those dots, if you could, and just, I mean, I'm only giving you a minute. That's not fair, but do do what you can, if you would, brother. <laughs> we we have an everlasting kingdom in Jesus Christ. And and this world is not our our permanent home, uh, that, that we, that he is the one who has come to be uh, the substitute for our sin, for us, and to answer for our sins, to give us righteousness that will bring us into his heavenly kingdom. He will reign on the throne of David forever. And that's, that's the blessedness of hearing those words. Right. right. We have a permanent kingdom, even in the midst of the destruction. There's going to be destruction in our Lord's day, right? He's going to be prophesying destruction of the temple, destruction of Jerusalem. There's going to be devastation, but there's something permanent for God's people in the midst of it. Amen. Thank you so much, brother. Got to have you on again real soon. Looking forward till next time. Everybody, that was Pastor David Boyce Clare, pastor of Faith in Bethesda Lutheran Churches in Pine Lawn, Missouri. Thanks for tuning in today. We also thank our underwriters at the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Check them out at lhfmissions.org. All right, moving on to Isaiah 8 next time. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. Till then, peace. You've been listening to Thy Strong Word, produced by the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate Office of National Mission in cooperation with Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the LCMS. Your support is vital for this program to continue. You can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Thy Strong Word.